Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how was your weekend uh, last week? Oh, the retreat was great. Yeah, it was very, well, it was silent, of course. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, you don't talk a whole lot during a silent retreat. So where was it? Who was putting it on? Oh, uh, it was Regnum Christi retreat. Uh, we, we have an annual retreat. And uh, it's held out at the Loyola of the Lakes. I don't know if you're familiar with where that is. Yeah, it is. rings a bell. Yeah. Your mom and dad have been there a few times, but over the years, it, it's a, you know, regular retreat house. <laughs> gotcha. And uh, it's one of two that we've used. There's another one up in uh, in Parma called the Jesuit Retreat House. Uh, okay. We go, there, we go there from time to time, but I guess uh, Loyola was more accessible to us this year. But so yeah, it was really good. I, I'll tell you, the, the priest that came uh, to preach the retreat was uh, was very good, and uh, uh, of course we don't have any discussions. <laughs> he he gives talks that are mostly intended for us to meditate on. You know, he gives us right. fuel for meditation, if you will, uh, and then we take over from there. So, but it was good. It was good. Good, good. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad that was good. Uh, so. Uh, we're going to talk about your career today, right? Yeah, that's that's what I got all my notes on. <laughs> great, great. <laughs> and then, you know, as as I finished this thing up this morning, I got to looking at it and thinking, you know, I, I can't imagine too many people are really that interested in all <laughs> all these little facts and figures and whatever. But uh, well, hey, you know, as an engineer myself, I'm kind of curious about you know your career and what you did at your various jobs. So uh, I'm interested to hear it anyway. Well, good, good. <laughs> maybe it's not. Maybe it won't be too boring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, at any rate, I just I uh, followed the lead on your sheet from you know the questions that you put in there, and so sure. um, um, the the first question is one that I thought I should answer. How did I decide on engineering? <laughs> yeah. Well, the truth is that I didn't decide. At least not to start. My dad actually pretty much decided on my career path, uh, and that was based on input that he received from teachers, both from uh, my grade school and high school teachers, who had been exposed to me and uh, knew what my strengths and weaknesses were. Okay. And so you know, he just he sat down and talked with them, and uh, I, I guess that was a time when people. Listen more to other people's advice, <laughs> to put it mildly. Uh, you know, they, I mean, I, I uh, ended up after some period of time going to engineering school. Uh, I, I confirmed in my own mind that it was the right path for me. You know, I mean, everything seemed to fit right and whatever. There were some courses that I didn't much care for, but um, I realized it was something that I, you know, had some gifts and talents in. And so I kept pursuing it. <laughs> yeah, there probably weren't a lot of history classes. Uh, or you don't use a lot of history in engineering, right? So that was good. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that was a good thing. And in fact, the only history I think that I remember having during the first two years of college were uh, American military history because I, I took two years of uh, Army ROTC while while I was in college and. Uh, uh, that you know, one of the one part of it was learning about military history. And I'll tell you what, that that was interesting. I mean, I'm I'm not sure why. I just uh, I was more of a military-minded person, I think, in those days, and uh, so it was very interesting to me. I I sucked it all up. I did very very well at it. But all the other history courses that I had ever taken, I was a C student at best. <laughs> And uh, didn't really care much for him as a result. <laughs> so, at any rate, I uh, the decision had been made for me to go into engineering and uh, got confirmed by me somewhere through that time, that four years. I, I'm not sure exactly when I, I finally came to grips with it and said, hey, this is for me. Uh, probably, though, as I entered my junior year, I'm thinking. First two years of engineering school are pretty broad-based, generalized subjects and whatever. Uh, there's a little science and, and math and uh, some chemistry and things like that, but not uh, nothing engineering-specific uh, until you get to be your junior year. Right. And that's when the explosion <laughs> came, at least for me anyway. 
I took, I, I made a mistake of taking too many credit hours my first semester of junior year. I was taking 22 credit hours. Oh, wow. And I, and I was working, and I'll tell you what, it almost blew me away. <laughs> wow. Plus, uh, it was that year that I actually got interested in a young woman <laughs> who was in nursing school. There was a, there was a nearby nursing school uh, down there in Dayton, uh, St. Elizabeth's Hospital School of Nursing. And a lot of the guys from UD would uh, would date the nurses over there, you know, the nurses in training, if you will. Yeah. Because that was a pretty large group. <laughs> and there were all, you know, there were dances and so forth that we could invite them to and that kind of thing. But uh, so I did get very interested in this one young lady for a long period of time, probably too long. Yeah. <laughs> for my own good, anyway. <laughs> I, my my grades started really going down in my junior year. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> so, so I made I had to make some decisions by the end of the year. <laughs> One of which was to put any kind of romantic thoughts on hold. <laughs> yeah, with twenty two credit anyway. hours. I, yeah, and at twenty two credit hours, you don't hardly have time for anything. <laughs> no, I didn't, including the, doing the work that I was had to do to survive on. You know, yeah, I was working part time about. I don't know, 10 to 20 hours a week and um, <laughs> barely had enough time to study. <laughs> At any rate, I got through it just barely. So at any rate, I was starting my career in 1957. Um, I took a job locally. I'm not sure exactly why. I guess I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I, I didn't want to venture out too far from home, I guess. Dayton had become my second home, and it was close to my other home in Cincinnati. So, for some reason, uh, um, I you know I had interviewed with a whole bunch of different companies in my senior year. They companies would come on campus in those days, um, searching for engineering talent, and um, and many guys got multiple job offers. I got six job offers from it. <laughs> you know because. Companies were, they were thirsty for engineers. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a good year. 1957 was a great year to graduate. So at any rate, but I, I did get an, one offer from a local company, the only local one that I actually interviewed with, and that was Frigid Air Division of uh, General Motors. Um, and I knew all somewhat about them. They were, I mean, I'd been past their, their plant many, many times. They were located about a half a mile from the uh, University of Dayton campus, so it was pretty close by. In any event, so I took a job with Frigidaire, and of course an ent <clears throat> entry job there was working in what we they called the household refrigeration test department. So I wasn't doing engineering work per se, I was doing more technician work. Okay. Um, I was working in a test laboratory, which was really exciting, I thought. I mean, it was the first venture for me into something that was m more than just, uh, you know, delivering newspapers or working in a drugstore or whatever. Uh, yeah. It was an actual engineering job, or at least re engineering related. And I, you know, I talked to all the engineers in the department who were doing all the designing and, and all that stuff. And I had, I had learned about refrigeration equipment when I was in college. So, I mean, I knew the principles of operation and all that. But here it got confirmed because we, that test department, I mean, I, I didn't even know companies did that. But they had, uh, at any one time, they'd have maybe a hundred different refrigerators on tests in different environmental environmental rooms. You know, they had temperature rooms of anywhere from 60 degrees up to 110 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> and they'd have maybe a, a dozen refrigerators in each one of those rooms. <laughs> and they were, they were, put them on tests. They, they run various kinds of tests on them, you know, the life tests and they'd run uh, transient tests, you know, where they, you have to go through and you open the, open and close the door 10 times a day or something like that to let heat into them. And, uh, and the, the, they were all wired with thermocouples all over so you could, they could record all the temperatures that were happening inside the box. And um, it was pretty interesting. You know, I got to learn about how do you find out what's going on inside there? Yeah, you well, probably learned more than you ever wanted to know about refrigerators. Well, that's true. <laughs> I didn't need to know all that stuff, but if you're going to build them, you have to know about it. <laughs> At 
and you know make them work so that customers are satisfied with them. So, but those were the days even when uh, separate refrigerator and freezer compartments were just coming into being. Uh, they used to have well the refrigerators that had freezers in them. The freezer was always located at the top, and it was always open to the rest of the refrigerator. Um, the the you know the refrigerator coil, the, the big freezer coil, if you will, that was located up on the top of the refrigerator. Uh, you stuffed all your frozen foods in there, and then the cold air from the bottom of the evaporator coil would would flow down across all the rest of the food. Uh, but it was kind of like one big compartment with no separation between them. You know, nowadays you got two different doors that you open on a refrigerator. The top one or the bottom one is a freezer, and then the other one's refrigerator section. So, yeah, I got to learn a lot about them, how they got designed and why they were built the way they are, and, and found out which ones were the best. Because <laughs> we tested not only refrigerator models, but every other brand that was built. <laughs> So, we, yeah, we were testing Westinghouse and Admiral and I don't know what, I can't even remember the names of all the companies, but there were at least eight or ten different companies that were manufacturing refrigerators. Was that for competitive analysis? Yeah, exactly. The whole idea was to see if, see if any of theirs were better than ours, and if so, why? And if, if we found out the answer why, then we'd build them better ourselves. Right. <laughs> So, you know, the idea was to be the best. <laughs> and uh, we didn't always reach that, I guess. But uh, and, a, and a lot of, especially for a re refrigerator, a lot of the appeal had to be uh, by eyesight, if you will, or by, by um, tra not tradition, but, uh, um, oh, I, I don't know. At any rate, it, the women always bought refrigerators. Men didn't buy refrigerators. Right. <laughs> So you had to appeal to women. <laughs> and yeah, I, I think I it's always a, a challenge in product design to make it both <laughs> as functional as possible, but also visually appealing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it not only efficient in a, uh, you know, an efficiency uh, from an engineering standpoint, but efficient from a standpoint of placing of foods. You know, I yeah. mean, that's why you came up with all these door shelves of various kinds. You know, you got these crisper drawers that you pull out. Some of them are for meat, some for vegetables, whatever. Well, women liked all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> they liked this separation of, of foods because they felt like, oh, that makes it better. <laughs> well, it really doesn't. But, <laughs> I mean, those, what happens inside one of those drawers is the same thing that happens on the shelves. <laughs> it's just that the drawer may be convenient because you can pull it out. And, uh, you know, it, it exposes all your vegetables or your meats or whatever, so you can get to them easier. And women like that. It didn't, it didn't do a lick of anything as far as refrigeration was concerned. Right. But, <laughs> but it sure, and same way with the door shelves. I mean, they didn't help. With, they, they were the same temperature as the, as the inner shelves, but it made things, you know, easier to get to. Yeah, or more organized, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, I mean, I use my door shelves all the time. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, uh, so I learned a lot about the intricacies of building, designing and building a refrigerator. And uh, so it was kind of fun while it lasted. But that was my, my first job was my first time I got laid off. <laughs> after, after our engineering professors were assuring us as engineers that, hey, companies don't lay off engineers. You know I mean? We right. were at, in the 40s and, and mid-50s, we were at the peak of people hiring engineers. Nobody laid them off. <laughs> well, except when the economy goes flat. <laughs> and right, people yeah. Stop, yeah. One of the first things people stop buying is refrigerators. <laughs> they just keep buying food and clothing, but forget about the, uh, you know, the major appliances and things that cost a lot of money. They just don't buy those things when the economy goes flat. And that's exactly what happened in 19, early 1958. <laughs> Less than one year after I graduated. And the General Electric, or not General Electric, but uh, General Motors decided that they needed to lay off a bunch of people, trim down their workforce so they wouldn't have to pay out as much money. <laughs> 
And I right. was one of them. I was the last one of the last guys to be hired, and so it's in the uh, employment business. It's last, last in, first out. That's how it works. <laughs> it's not so like you didn't regular. have uh, you didn't have enough seniority, or you I, said last had, in, first out. I had ten months seniority. <laughs> oh wow! When I got laid off, <laughs> so I was. I, there might have been one other guy with with less seniority than me, but right. but I don't think so. <laughs> I think I was the the most recent hire in that department, <laughs> so I got laid off. Uh, at any rate, and it was you know it was a uh, one of those what they call exempt positions. I mean, it wasn't like a it wasn't a blue collar job or anything. It wasn't an hourly job. It was a salary job. So <laughs> he just felt pretty secure going into that. But uh, but it wasn't. So after ten months, I got my layoff notice. They gave me two weeks' pay, and said you ought to start looking for another job. Don't bother to come in next Monday. Wow. <laughs> they they were kind about it in that way. Sure. I didn't have to. Re- you know, they told me on a Friday, and they said you don't have to report in for work. You know, we're going to pay you for two weeks, but forget about coming in. You got to find another job. So I did. <laughs> and. Uh, that's how I landed my second job, which was Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I went ah, back yes. To, went back to uh, University of Dayton campus. Uh, this happened to be in like March, March of '58, uh, when the, when I got the layoff notice. March or April, I forget. But in the, at any rate, the all the companies that were hiring again uh, were back on campus interviewing people. So I made arrangements to interview with a couple of companies. <laughs> now sure. a lot of them had that year had pulled out. You know, they because the economy had gone flat early in the year. Uh, a lot of the companies, you know, pulled out their uh, desire to interview people. Uh, or at any rate, when they did interview, they you know you realize well they didn't really have any jobs to offer you. They just were coming in to fulfill their obligation to interview people. So at any rate, right, Patterson Air Force Base happened to be one of the employers that was seeking young engineers. And uh, when I when I told the interview guy that I had almost a year's experience. <laughs> that probably gave you a leg up. Oh, he did. He said, oh, wow. He said, this will be no problem at all <laughs> to hire you. In fact, they... They usually had they have a what they call a general schedule of of wages. They call it the GS system, general schedule. At any rate, they had GS five was the the level that most uh, engineers went in or got hired at. You know, fresh out of college, and then it, and then it goes GS five, seven, nine, and then it then it starts going on one one increment at a time. But in any event, he said, oh, yeah, we can probably offer you a GS-7, you know, as opposed to a GS-5. <laughs> and I thought, well, that sounds good. How much is that? <laughs> right. So I had, had to translate that into dollars to have it be meaningful to me. Right. Because I had no idea what a GS-5 or 7 was. But uh, at any rate, so I started working at right field in the first, I had overall... I worked there for 11 years, and I had three different positions during that 11 years. The first okay. one um, had to do with aircraft structural modification work. Um, there was a department there at Wright Field that did all of the installation of test equipment in various kinds of aircraft. We had, Wright-Patterson was a uh, research and development center for the Air Force, and so we had 100 different aircraft at our disposal to do testing on a <laughs> hundred of them <laughs> which is pretty remarkable i mean somehow they set aside this hundred different they're all different kinds of planes bombers fighters cargo planes passenger planes whatever and uh, they were all there at our disposal to install various kinds of of new equipment to test out things like um, communications equipment you know radio antennas and things like that um or um, things like camera equipment, photographic equipment, radar, the installations, etc. There's a whole bunch of stuff that the Air Force was always wanting to upgrade and test out new things. So, and you had to install them somehow in an aircraft, and they had to be installed to meet certain strength criteria. Um, 
and and that was our job was to actually get all this stuff installed. And a lot of times, it required cutting holes in the side of the aircraft in the fuselage, you know, to to mount things, um, and replace pieces of skin with pieces of plexiglass, for example, so you could see through it with a a camera or something like that. Okay. Um, so it was a very interesting job, and it lasted for. I think I stayed at that one for about three and a half to four years and really enjoyed it. There were a lot of, uh, worked on a lot of different aircraft. Um, we, had, we had bombers, like I say. Of course, back then, they were the old B-47, B-52 jet bombers, but you probably don't even know what those are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've heard of the B-52. <laughs> well, yeah, they're still hanging around. But... <laughs> But the B-47 was a medium bomber, if you will. The B-52 was a heavy bomber. Gotcha. Okay, and then we had we had all kinds of fighter aircraft that you probably never heard of. Uh, F-100s, F-104s, F-101s, F-105s. Yeah. <laughs> all of them different capabilities. And um, then we had lots of cargo planes that we worked on, too. Uh, they were used for not only just hauling cargo, but people as well. Um, with small two-engine planes like the, what was called the C-131. Uh, we had four-engine planes and we had four-engine turbo turboprops. Uh, didn't have any four-engine jet cargo planes at that point. Uh, they, they got introduced many years later. But um, So in any event, uh, cutting apart all those aircraft and putting them back together was was a real challenge. I had never worked on aircraft structures before, had never even been introduced to them in college. You know, that was one thing that was strictly on-the-job training. Fortunately, there was, there was a couple of other guys there who had been involved in aircraft structural work for many years, and they knew right where to go to get the information that I needed right. <laughs> to figure out when you, when you start cutting apart an airplane, what what are the stresses that you have to deal with? You know, what what do you have to replace it with uh, in order to make it stay together in one piece? And uh, we had all kinds of of uh, stress analysis reports from the aircraft manufacturers. But I'll tell you what, I mean, you look through a, a thousand page stress analysis report, you got to know what you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so. Uh, I got to be pretty good at that, you know, separating out a plane by its different stations or bays or whatever and figuring out where where we're going to put something inside that aircraft or outside of it and what what kind of structure do we have to hang it on to. Um, and then, we, you know, like I say, when you, when you cut apart a plane, you have to put it back together so it's at least as strong as it was before. <laughs> when you start cutting holes in any... Any fuselage or any any kind of cylindrical shaped object, um, you put serious stress risers in there. I mean, that, you know, they're they're built to be a, a closed unit, if you will, uh, and that's how the stresses are divided or, or carried, if you will. Um, that's why they make them what they call cigar shaped. You know, they're long and round and skinny <laughs> for the most part. So, but I learned a lot about aircraft structures. Uh, probably never need that information again in the rest of, as long as I live. But, <laughs> but it was fun. <laughs> and actually, one of you know, I, I was thinking about some of the stories that you asked. What kind of stories do I have? Well, I don't have a lot of stories, but there was there were a few incidents that happened during, during my employment history that I thought are worthy of note. Uh, one of them was. During that first job at Wright Field, uh, one of our our uh, jobs in that department was to do accident or incident investigations. In other words, when one of our 100 aircraft got involved in some kind of an accident, a hard landing, or you know ran into something or whatever, uh, and got damaged in some way, um, part of our responsibility was to go inspect that aircraft and tell the the uh, the hangar guys how to fix it you know so it make so it's still flyable right and um, I do recall one incident where one of our planes had to land at a, a very short runway down in Texas 
Um, it was not an Air Force base, but it was some other civilian runway. And um, the runway was only, I don't know, it was about three to 4,000 feet long. It wasn't very long. Um, that, that sounds pretty long, but it's not when you're landing a plane <laughs> right. of any size. <laughs> if it's a Piper Cub, it's okay, but, <laughs> but not most of the military planes we fly. So uh, at any rate, this plane happened to be, it had to land in a big heavy crosswind. And so I'm not going to explain what you got to do in order to land in a crosswind. <laughs> but the fact is that he got, as he was approaching the runway, he got right, be- right before the end of the runway and the, the wind died down all of a sudden and the plane dropped about 10 feet. And, and it hit the ground actually before the runway. And unfortunately, the runway, this was an old, air, uh, old airfield, and uh, people hadn't cared for it very well. So there was a, the runway, the concrete on the runway was actually about six or eight inches above the ground level around it. Ooh, so I bet he blew his tires off. Uh, well, he didn't blow any. <laughs> I mean, they're built pretty tough, <laughs> these planes. <laughs> but he hit down before the runway. In fact, we went down there and found, we could see right where his tires hit. <clears throat> and uh, and so he hit the edge of the runway as he was you know going forward, and uh, did some damage to the plane. Well, we we got a call saying, hey, you got to come down here and take a look. We got to be able to get this plane back home somehow. And what do we got to do to fix it <laughs> to make sure it works? And so we I I boarded another plane exactly like that one. Actually, it's a it was a C one thirty one, one that we used a lot for. Uh, <clears throat> taking Air Force people around the country in. And uh, we went to that same airfield, and lo and behold, we had to do a, a crosswind landing. <laughs> and lo and behold, the plane I was riding on did the same thing. Oh, it, man. We suffered a sudden wind loss, crosswind loss, and the plane dropped, <laughs> and we hit the edge of the runway, too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now you can analyze it twice. Yeah, right. Well, it, in fact, when we went out there to, to look at the end of the runway to see what that was like, it was hard to, to tell the difference between the previous plane's tire marks and ours. Right. <laughs> they were very close together. <laughs> Nonetheless, we saw what, the, you know, what it had hit. And, uh, of course, the plane bounces just a little bit when it hits. And there's, there's a certain amount of uh, uh, cushioning in the landing gear anyway. So it wasn't like it, you know, it, it hit full force on that that lip of the runway it, it bounced a little bit right. before hitting the runway but um, in any event our plane fortunately didn't get damaged at all at least from what we a visual inspection could tell uh, the other one however when we when i looked at it fez, face on i mean it was very evident that one of the engine nacelles which is the the sheet metal housing that encloses the engine one of them was kind of drooping a bit, um, and you could vi- visually see that. <laughs> the left one was drooping more than the right one. <laughs> so we knew that's where it had hit, apparently. And um, so we did some close inspection, whatever. We found a few few cracks in the skin and whatever, and a few uh, bent pieces that were, you know, they were structurally there, but uh, they weren't the, the main structure. So... We formulated a way to, you know, to fix it. But fortunately, we had a plane to fly back home in. <laughs> right. ours, ours didn't get damaged. But in, in the, uh, the orders I gave to the other guys, the field crew there, to how to repair the, the one that did get damaged, they, they invited me to fly on that plane back home. <laughs> I said, no, I think I'll just take the other one. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm very sure that, you know, this fix that you're going to do here will help, you know, it'll hold together. It won't be any problem, but, <laughs> but what the heck? I got, you know, I, this other one's leaving sooner anyway, so I'm going to take it. Sure. <laughs> Go back home. So at any rate, I, that was kind of an interesting time in my life. Um, okay, from there, actually, after about three or four years of doing that kind of work, um, I started looking around because I had a couple of other friends who worked at Wright Field, and they were working more in the research and development stuff, which was really interesting. I mean, there was, we had we did R and D on 
all kinds of things, propulsion systems and uh, aircraft auxiliary systems and flight, flight control systems and whatever. And uh, so we had different laboratories that did this kind of work. And uh, we had one laboratory called the, the Aero Propulsion Laboratory, which did not only main propulsion, but also uh, secondary power propulsion, if you will. Because uh, you had, on, on an airplane, you got to have some kind of secondary power to run all of the electrical equipment and what have you, the lights, the landing gear, the, you know, all the, all the hydraulics and whatever, and pneumatics and whatever. So uh, at any rate, I got involved in that propulsion lab and I <clears throat> got a good job offer there. And, and it, was, it was time for me to move on anyway. Um, but I, I happened to land in the, uh, the area of that propulsion lab that was doing research and development on auxiliary power systems for space use. Now, during the 60s, you're not familiar with that, <laughs> but all during the 60s, um, you, you, you probably have heard of the speech that John F. Kennedy gave sometime in 1961 or so, uh, not in 1961, in 1960, pardon me, where he, uh, he made a, uh, a public announcement that it was his goal for us to reach the moon, land the man on the moon by within the next decade. In other words, by, by 1970. And I'll tell you what, that lit the fire on, under a lot of people, I including bet. the people who had to dole out the money to do it. Because <laughs> he, he, you know, we were, essentially we were racing with the Russians to get into space at that time. And... Uh, Man, I'll tell you what, they pulled out the stops on, on funding. Uh, funding was just, it was flowing like water, seriously. <laughs> all, you, all you had to do was ask for it. You know, he, we got this idea, you know, we want to try this out. You know, it only costs 50 million bucks, you know, what the heck? <laughs> it's only money. <laughs> so, at any rate, the money was flowing in the 60s, and so that meant any kind of space research and development. Um, it, it, it didn't have any problem at all getting it approved, you know. Because we had know, to beat we had to beat out Russia and China, right? Yep, exactly. And we didn't know what they were doing exactly, but you know, we we had some idea, and uh, we knew that they were racing also to put a man on the moon. Uh, I don't know why. I can't. You know, when I look back at that. I think, why was it so important to get to the moon? <laughs> we haven't we haven't done anything with it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we haven't been back much uh, since either. It's been quite right. a while. Well, yeah, we went back there a few times, but that, <laughs> but it's a pretty dead planet. I mean, it's not a planet. It's yeah. a moon, actually. Uh, so at any rate, it, it was a stepping stone, I guess, to get us into space. But it was it, those were fun years all through the 60s uh, because, like I say, the, the money was not a problem. And, uh, it, you know... Almost any idea that you wanted to investigate uh, was okay, was, was op open ground for new ideas. And so some of the wild stuff we were looking at was trying to use, <clears throat> for secondary power systems, you had only a few choices. You could use batteries, which back in those days were very, very limited in their ability to, you know, for, for duration. Yeah, and probably power. very heavy for the amount of energy they could store. They were, right, especially lead-acid batteries. Well, you didn't want to yeah. put lead-acid batteries up in space, so we started developing nickel-cadmium batteries and then silver-cadmium and, that, you know, one after another. In fact, a lot of those had offshoots in the civilian world. That's where all of our AA, AAA uh, batteries come from. You know, they, they came from the technology generated back then uh, because we didn't ha know how to build batteries other than the kind we put in an automobile, and they were called lead-acid batteries, and they were kind of dangerous <laughs> because of the, the fluids that were inside of them. It's cool. But uh, at any rate, these what, what became known as dry cell batteries, the ones you hold in your hand, you know, those little circular things, uh, those, were, uh, those were pretty much a new invention. And... Uh, so they held a lot of hope, except that they were still, for the amount of power you get out of them, they were heavy. And um, so you had to use a lot of them. And then the next, the next best thing was what's called solar power. And there was 
couple of different approaches to use harnessing solar energy. Uh, solar cells started to be developed back in the early 60s. Uh, you've, you've heard of solar cells, I'm sure. Oh, yes. You've, you've probably seen arrays of solar cells sitting out in somebody's field somewhere or up on top, perched on somebody's roof. Uh, they use some of them to try to help heat your home with, so forth. But again, they're big. <laughs> to, you know, to, to scoop up very much of the sun's power, you got to have a very, very large uh, solar array. And, uh, and getting those out in the space is difficult. <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, you got to be able to fold them all up to get them there. And then you got to unfold them, you know, to, to use them. Uh, but they still require, you know, hundreds of square feet of surface area to get very much power. Uh, I, I don't remember what the power density was of solar cells in the early 60s was, but it was very low. I mean, it's like... Yeah, probably not like today. Oh, no, nothing. I mean, today, they're probably 10 to 20 times as more uh, uh, power density. That's what we call it anyway. Uh, the not, amount of power you get per square foot of array. The, the solar arrays are, have gotten much, much better, technically. But still in all, <laughs> in order to get very much power, you know, if you're, if you're talking... A few watts of power is not a problem, or even tens of watts. But if you start talking hundreds of watts or kilowatts either, once you start talking kilowatts of power, suddenly solar arrays don't look all that promising because they get to be pretty big. Right. So we started looking at alternate means for providing electrical power in space. And the one we chose in the propulsion lab was nuclear power. <laughs> we thought, hey, if it works on Earth, why can't we do one, you know, put a nuclear reactor up in space? <laughs> you get all kinds of power from one of those, even sure. the smallest ones. In fact, we didn't even know how to build a very small one. The, the ones we had uh, experience with were the huge ones that we used for generating power for a city, you know. And uh, you couldn't put one of those up in space. They were much too big. Yeah. So we started looking at what do you got to do to build a nuclear reactor that is useful and doesn't weigh so much that you can't get it off the ground. Um, you know, you have to shield it. And it's the shielding that usually kills you <laughs> on a nuclear reactor. If you want to put people on board this spacecraft, uh, you got to have real heavy shielding. Otherwise, they get all radiated and you yeah. know, they die die quickly. <laughs> so. At any rate, there's lots of different problems with nuclear power plants, but we thought, well, hey, we'll start off small. We'll start with maybe like one to five kilowatts, build, build a power plant of one to five kilowatts. But then we had, a, we had designs for up to 300 kilowatts, which is, I mean, when we started looking at the amount of power that was going to be needed to do things in space, we started getting up there pretty quickly, above 100 kilowatts. I mean, it's not hard to get there. Uh, you know, just just a few, running a few motors <laughs> and doing other experiments and, and keeping people alive and so forth takes a lot of power. And, yeah. Um, I mean, just look at what you use in your house. You, know? <laughs> you can't get by with a, a kilowatt or two <laughs> during a day. It takes a lot more than that. So at any rate, we started investigating, and that, that was uh, one of the power plants I did research and development on. Was uh, We called it the, the SPUR system, Space Power Unit Reactor. <laughs> we always had these you know, short nicknames for these things. <laughs> NASA was doing similar things, uh, and they called all their systems SNAP systems. Systems for not Nuclear Auxiliary Power, SNAP. Gotcha. <laughs> and uh, they were developing some of the smaller ones, like the 3-kilowatt one and, and up to 10 kilowatts. We decided, hey, we'd, we'd go for the bigger ones then. So we were kind of working in partnership with NASA at the time, um, developing these things. But, of course, we had outside contractors doing most of the actual work. Uh, we did a lot of design stuff and... We oversaw the, the contractors doing, doing their work, experimentation and all that. But uh, both agencies, the Air Force and NASA, kind of worked hand-in-hand during those years. Uh, I don't know that they still do. 
I suspect they don't. Right. <laughs> For a number of reasons, you know, you start getting like, start looking at things like, hey, that's what that was my idea. You know, you, you guys stole this idea from us. Well, I mean, you know, how? Why should the the United States Air Force and the National Aeronautics and Space Administration be a doing battle with one another right <laughs> what the heck they work for the same people <laughs> the government or the you know the citizens of the united states but yeah there's a lot of competition out there <laughs> so at any rate it was that was a pretty exciting time for me all those um those years of working in the propulsion lab i got to work with a lot of good contractors who uh, who kind of knew what they were doing but you know they had these out, wild ideas. I mean, we experimented on so many wild ideas, I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nowadays, if you put some of these things before the U.S. government, you know, and you say, we want to build a space radiator that looks like this. So say we, there was one that was called a rolling belt radiator. And I'll tell you what, it was a nightmare to build, nightmare to operate, but in theory, it worked great. <laughs> you know, it was able to dissipate heat the way you had to. And, of course, that's one of the problems with, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, auxiliary power systems like the ones we have on Earth, you know, like Ohio Edison and whatever, those that generate electrical power. Yeah, you, not particularly. Maybe, you're probably not familiar with the efficiency of those systems. Yeah. <clears throat> they, all, they all work on uh, uh, thermodynamic cycles, at, which... Just by their nature, their their efficiency, their overall thermal efficiency, can't really exceed about twenty five to thirty percent. I mean, they okay. just there's no way to squeeze any more. You know, you burn a, a pound of coal or a pound of oil or whatever it is you're going to burn to to create heat. There's no way to extract a hundred percent of that energy and and turn it into mechanical or electrical energy. Right. Just, there's just no way to do that. <laughs> We're bound by the physical laws. And uh, one of them is that overall thermal efficiency in the 25 to 30% range is about as far as you can go. And so that means most of the heat energy that's being generated has to be dumped off somewhere. You have to get rid of it. Right. I mean, it doesn't just stay there inside the inside the building, so to speak, <laughs> when you burn, you know, a, a ton of coal or something, I mean, it gives off a certain amount of heat. Well, what do you do with the heat that you're not using to, to boil water with in order to generate steam and, you know, drive a turbine? Well, you got to do something with it. That's why they build these power plants near a river or a lake or an ocean where they have huge amounts of cooling capacity. That's what they use the rivers and the water, the lakes for. Huh. It's cooling water because they have to dump that heat, that excess heat from that thermodynamic cycle, which is not all that efficient. And, uh, and the same thing governs people in space. You know, when you're generating electrical power, for every kilowatt of power that you're generating electrically, you've got to dump about three or four kilowatts of power out into space somehow. Wow. Well, how do you do that? Well, on Earth, we have three forms of heat transfer. We have conduction, we have convection, and we have radiation. Well, the main two on the Earth are the conduction and convection. You know, conduction is simple uh, one, one body of something in contact with another body. You're transferring the heat directly between two pieces of, of material <laughs> of some kind. And sometimes that's the material is water. <laughs> uh, the other thing is convection. That that kind of heat transfer happens when, like air or any other kind of gas, gets heated. It moves. You know, it, the molecules inside there move, and they they actually convect. Then we call it <laughs> that. That heat energy rises away from the uh, the body that's producing it. Right. <clears throat> well, when you look at space. <laughs> You can't do that. There ain't nothing to conduct it to. Right. And there ain't no air out there to conduct it to either. Huh. <laughs> so your only choice is radiation heat transfer. And there are 
physical laws that govern how much heat you can transfer by radiation. And one of the laws has to do with the actual temperature on the surface of what you're conducting from, or radiating from, rather. Um, the hotter, the higher that temperature, the more easy, the easier it is to conduct or to radiate heat. It, it radiates heat at a much higher rate if the temperature of the surface from which you're radiating is, say, a thousand degrees compared to a hundred degrees. Okay. <clears throat> so, I mean, it's again simple laws of physics. <laughs> So the idea is to have your your power plant or whatever it is operating at a pretty high temperature. If you can do that, well, that's another limitation with water. On Earth, we use water as our primary uh, coolant, if you will, and heat source. And that's not the heat source, but it's uh, it's what we we boil and, and make steam out of a vapor, and that's what we drive turbo machinery with. Well. The problem with water is that it has a very high vapor pressure. <laughs> so that as the temperature goes up, the pressure goes way up. <laughs> and so if you want to if you want to be able to radiate and dump heat out in space at say 800 degrees Fahrenheit, your water has to get that high of a temperature. Well, in order to get 800 degrees Fahrenheit with with steam, oh man, you're talking about pressures up in the Thousands of psi, <laughs> and uh, and all of a sudden the uh, the heat exchanger, the, the containment materials that you got to hold it in with, uh, becomes very heavy. So we look for different working uh, fluids, as we call them, and that was also very exciting because uh, the working fluids we chose were from a, a class of, off of the uh, the uh, periodic chart called the, um, yeah, I'll come up with a name for them in a minute. <laughs> the, not rare metals, they're uh, alkali metals, that's what it is, alkali metal group. Sodium, okay. sodium, potassium, rubidium, cesium, those four alkali metals, when you boil those, when you heat them up and melt them and boil them, they have a very low vapor pressure. Okay. So you can boil them at a very high temperature. You you know carry the temperatures way up, a thousand degrees or so, and you're only dealing with a couple of hundred pounds per square inch pressure, compared to thousands of pounds per square inch for water. So that's why we decided, hey, the best thing to use in space, <clears throat> in order to save weight, is use these other kind of working fluids: sodium, potassium, rubidium, and cesium. We even included mercury in there. Oh, wow. we, we actually had um, actually built experimental uh, test loops using mercury as the uh, fluid, as the, uh, the the working fluid that you boil off and you run through a turbine, and then you condense it back and boil it off again. <clears throat> of course, the problem with all those particular working fluids is they're very corrosive, <laughs> uh, much more so than water. <laughs> So the containment materials that we had to develop in order to contain those those new working fluids were <clears throat> were very exotic materials. So you know, every time you made one one advance in some part of your your physics, uh, another part of it had to suffer, or you had to really do a lot of development to to make it work. And that's why you know we did a lot of high temperature, high strength materials and alloy alloy. Uh, Investigations. I mean, we we started using materials like molybdenum, titanium, tungsten, tantalum, columbium, and various other. <laughs> I haven't heard of half of those. I know you haven't. <laughs> but we we made lots of different alloys out of those materials. <laughs> yeah, I, I can remember columbium one one percent zirconium was one of the main containment materials we could we can use because it was very high strength at high temperatures <clears throat> you know most of the the common materials that we use today that are very high strength really aren't that high strength when you when you subject them to a thousand degree fahrenheit temperatures right <laughs> they get real weak <laughs> i mean most of the common steels that we use for example don't hold up that well but alloys of these Materials that I just mentioned to you, 
they hold up, and you can build turbo machinery out of them, pumps, uh, heat exchangers, whatever you, tubing for the you know to carry the fluid from one place to the next, um, and and the pressure vessels that you're going to put them in uh, can be made out of those kinds of materials. So we had lots and lots of material research going on during the 60s. And I'll tell you, you know, when I look back, <clears throat> now I'm not all that familiar with what's happened since 1970 for the last 50 years, in other words, in the way of materials development. But my guess is that we probably developed more high-strength, high-temperature materials in the 1960s alone than we did since in the last 50 years since then. Wow. I mean, just because of the necessity for getting out into space just required looking at new materials. Nowadays, we don't have all that much of a pressing need to look at new materials. Uh, the ones that we developed back in the 60s can still be used in the in, you know, 2020s for going out in space. So uh, there's just not that much of a pressure that I know. Maybe down in the... Uh, you know, in circuit boards and so forth, maybe the development of new materials there has been been pretty rapid in the last 50 years. I'm not familiar with that. The stuff yeah, that runs, I've, runs uh, computers and whatever. <laughs> I certainly, I've certainly read that. You know, we that there was an enormous amount of technology that came out of the space race that was applicable to just every other area of industry and modern life. Oh yeah. Know. Oh yeah. Yeah, I can think of dozens of things, you know, like, even that simple things like the batteries, I mean, <laughs> and solar cells. Well, yeah. nobody, who in the heck would even want to use solar cells unless you had lots and lots of money to, to make them worthwhile? Right. <laughs> and we, in the 60s, we had lots and lots of money. <laughs> yeah. The one thing we didn't have any shortage of for some reason. But, uh, yeah, so it, it was a... It was a fantastic decade to live in as far as research and development and new materials development and that kind of stuff. Um, and it was downright fun to work in it. I mean, because <laughs> you're kind of part of something that, you know, you can actually see the results of. Yeah. For the most part. <laughs> for the most part. But, okay, at any rate, uh, I'm starting to run a little long here, so let me get to the... <laughs> Yeah, well, we can we my... can break it up into two parts, you know, if, if you've still got a lot well, to go. Too... Well, yeah, I do have a fair amount. <laughs> I just, I'm looking at my list of notes here. <laughs> hey, we aren't on any particular schedule here, so, you know, if you want to well, call well, it a I'm day. I'm thinking, can... yeah, about, a, about an hour is pretty much, you know, I, I figure that's reasonable. I, I hate to go much beyond an hour. Sure, yeah, we can, that. we can start to wrap it up here. <laughs> but, uh, well, let's see, maybe, well, actually, maybe one... Yeah, one last job that I had at, yeah. uh, while I was at Wright-Patterson before I transferred over to General Electric. Uh, I'll, just, I'll wrap up my employment years at Wright-Patterson. Yeah. And that was the last couple of years that I spent there. Uh, I spent in what was called the Foreign Technology Division. It was, <laughs> it was the Air Force's equivalent of the CIA. Oh, wow. <laughs> and everybody that worked there had a top-secret clearance. <laughs> In fact, there was. I found out when I got there that there was, there was a lot of things classified above top secret level. <laughs> they had different wow. names for them that I'm not even permitted to say what they were. Wow! <laughs> Although they, they've changed the names for them over the years, you know, I, I'm sure of that. But uh, at any rate, yeah, <laughs> it was an amazing place to work. <laughs> now, that's why I thought I. That, but it was only a couple of years and. Uh, but I worked on, in fact, all the engineers there worked on, usually on some kind of specific foreign weapon system, because we were trying to figure out what the Russians were building and, and what the capabilities were for all of their weapon systems. And so I happened to, when I got in there, I happened to draw a weapon system called, in those days, and I think it's, it's long since been declassified as far as what, what you call it. It's called the SS-9 ICBM, hmm. <laughs> and developed by the USSR, of course, not by us. <laughs> and our job was to collect all the information that we possibly could about that particular weapon system. And, uh, and we got that information, by the way, from a lot of sources that were all classified. I mean, they're, they, what they actually do is still classified, but, but the information came by way of 
<coughs> radar intelligence, communications intelligence, photographic intelligence, and satellite imagery. Um, and all those things, you know, the, the way in which that we did that was all classified, but the, the actual existence of it is not classified. You know, the fact that we were intercepting <laughs> Russian transmissions of radar, or was it, they don't transmit radar, but uh, they, they transmit communications uh, information. And we were able to intercept most everything that they, they did. Of course, they, it was all encoded, so somebody had to be smart enough to figure out <laughs> how, how you decode it <laughs> so you can find out what it's actually saying or telling you. But uh, we got a lot, back in those days even, we got a lot of satellite imagery um, that we got to look at. Neat looking pictures taken from space. Um, only these were close, er, close to earthbound kind of uh, spacecraft. Right. Nothing more than a couple hundred miles up. Because otherwise the, the photographs were, you know, just not, not very good if you got too high in the sky. But we had interesting looking photographs that, we had, that were presented to us almost every day from some of these things. But back then... Um, we didn't have the transmission, the electronic transmission capabilities from the satellites to Earth. So essentially what they did was they took photographic images on real film, and those real film packages or canisters would be ejected from the satellite. And then at some level, some uh, altitude, a parachute would open, and they would gently float down into the ocean. And some, <laughs> we had aircraft and boats and various other things stationed at these places where it was going to drop and we'd pick them up and huh. develop the film. I mean, it was pretty old technology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in any event, it got done, got the work done. And uh, another interesting thing was the, the Russians back in those days, they always had a what was called a May Day Parade. It was one of the dates, special dates uh, that, that marked part of their history or something like that of the Bolshevik Revolution. Now that wasn't until November but of 1917, I think. But at any rate, uh, they had a May Day parade in which they pr prided themselves on parading all of the latest uh, weapon systems that they had out on the streets of, of uh, Moscow. Huh. And of course, of course, we had agents stationed there oh, yeah. <laughs> who were taking photographs of these things. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, and, and it was, what was really interesting was that some of the stuff, that some of the ICBMs and whatever that they were hauling on trailers, we determined that they're, they're fake. I mean, they're, <laughs> they were just wooden models. <laughs> they weren't real. <laughs> and they, they were doing that for deception purposes, I guess, because they were mixing in the fake stuff with the real stuff. And, uh, but we, got this, we had photos of, of all of it, you know, the whole parade. So at any rate, but my job, along with a bunch of other engineers, was to scoop up all the, the information we could from radar intercepts, from communication intercepts, satellite imagery and whatever, um, and determine as best we could what the range of, the, of this particular weapon system was, what its accuracy was. We called it circular error of probability. It's a certain diameter circle that, that it would fall into. Um, and then also the payload size and whether it was a, a multiple independent target uh, re-entry vehicle. Because some of the warheads, like ours, uh, we have as many as nine warheads in them <laughs> that wow. are independently targetable. <laughs> so you, get, you launch one missile and you could hit nine different targets. <laughs> Wow. Which is really incredible. <laughs> Get a lot of bang for your fuel buck. Yeah, yeah. So at any rate, um, those, those are the kinds of things that we were supposed to try to determine from all the intelligence information that we received. Now, obviously, it's, it's near impossible to paint a detailed picture of what, the, what their capabilities were. But we tried to get as close as we could. Um, and uh, it, like I say, it was an interesting job. But the fact that we, we had to work in, uh, inside a totally closed environment. I mean, this, this building we worked in had no windows in it, zero windows. It, had, it was made of two or three foot thick concrete walls. And it had all kinds of uh, 
uh, reinforcing steel mesh inside those walls to prevent transmission from the inside to the outside of any electronic signals. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it, when you walked into that building in the morning, I mean, they had all kinds of guards and whatever standing there with, with uh, guns. <laughs> wow. And you had to, you know, show your badge who you were. You had to actually lay it up against the glass so that the guy could actually see it. And, um, and then he'd wave you through. Uh, and then there were certain places in the building that required different levels of clearance. So, you know, when you'd have to go to each one of those doors and go through that door wherever you're cleared for. <laughs> and, uh, but it was like living in a closed, totally closed society. Because for one thing, nothing that we were discussing inside that building was to be discussed on the outside of that building. Right. Except in another secure location, like in Washington, D.C., or something like that, you know, at a CIA headquarters or whatever. Um, so, I mean, after a year or a year and a half of that, I mean, I, I got to the point where it was driving me nuts, having, not being able to even talk. I mean, I was carpooling with a good friend of mine every day. And we'd sit in the car, and we couldn't talk to each other about what we were doing. Right. <laughs> What'd you do today, Bob? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I had a banana for lunch. How about I, you? I would tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it was awful. Uh, I mean, and the safeguards they had inside this building, they were some of them were sort of comical, uh, like like the uh, the trash disposal, for example. Everybody had a wastebasket near his desk that had two uh, paper garbage bags in it. And, and what you did was you took all of your trash for that day, whatever it was, whether it's classified or not, and you threw it in those bags, including your banana skins from lunch, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It all went in there. And when the bag got nearly full, you had to roll over the inner bag and staple it shut, and then roll over the outer bag and staple it shut, and then personally take that bag and set it out next to the rear door where just outside that rear door was a an incinerator. <laughs> and once a week, after these bags would all stack up out there, they'd get a crew of us, maybe four or five guys, to go back there. And uh, they, they would open the back door. And under armed guard, <laughs> these guys, we would take all these paper bags and throw them into the incinerator outside. <laughs> I mean, it was really something... <laughs> You talk about clandestine. <laughs> At any rate, that's that was part of our job was to uh, dispose of all the information that went outside the building. Uh, you couldn't take any paperwork outside, and unless it was, you know, something that was authorized, you had to have authorization to take any kind of paperwork uh, outside the building. And and even inside the building, we had two. Everybody had two telephones on their desk. One was black, and the other was red. Well, the red phone allowed you to, to talk inside the building to someone else with uh, classified information up to secret level. Not top secret, but just secret level. So you could conduct some conversations with somebody else that you're working with maybe on a project. But right. he's lo located, you know, 100 yards away or something. But, uh, and then the black phone were, were used to talk to people outside the building but when you <laughs> when you finished a call on the black phone, you had to unplug it from the wall. <laughs> they didn't allow you to leave it plugged in throughout the day. Right. And that was simply because, you know, they found that, hey, there are ways that people can somehow tap into that. And they could figure out ways to actually hear conversations inside the building. Now, I don't know how they did this, but, you know, it's, you talk about spy work. <laughs> I wasn't into that, <laughs> but that was the kind of thing we had to put up with. But uh, and then the other, one of the interesting things was about having top secret handling top secret material was that when you're traveling, like, and we went to I, I made a lot of trips to Washington D.C. To, to chat with people of uh, Army intelligence and Navy intelligence and and the CIA people and the national security advisory people, you know, NSA. and I mean, there's all kinds of intelligence agencies in this country. <laughs> I, I got introduced to most of them at any rate. So, but we occasionally go up there for a big meeting, you know, and uh, we sometimes have to carry 
classified information with us. Well, one of the rules was if you travel with top secret information, you had to tra go in, in pairs. You never go by yourself. Oh. And in the event that when you got to Washington, there was no uh, government building that had a safe in it that was open. You know, if you, if you arrived there after about four or five in the afternoon, for example, there was no place you could deposit that material, that classified material. You had to keep it with you at all times in a briefcase or something. And uh, so the rule was, if you were staying overnight and you couldn't get your, couldn't deposit your top secret information in any kind of a uh, authorized vault, you had to take it with you into your motel or hotel room, and the two of you had to rent the, you know, stay in the same room, <laughs> and one of you was supposed to stay awake all night. <laughs> I mean, you could take turns, but. Right. Somebody had to be awake the whole time. And I'm thinking, you know, that was one of the... I'll, I'll confess to you now, Tom, I, I didn't do that. <laughs> and the guys I traveled with didn't either. <laughs> we decided to heck with it. We're, we'll stuff the suitcase or the uh, briefcase under the bed <laughs> we'll go to bed. Yeah, who's going to get to that without waking you up? <laughs> yeah, right. If somebody comes in, what the heck? <laughs> At any rate, so I, that was kind of an interesting part of the job. Yeah, that's kind of funny. Um, but that was about it. Actually, the, it was the closed society, working in a closed society like that, and not being able to exchange technical information with anybody else outside the agency, you know, except in, in these authorized meetings in Washington or somewhere. Uh, I mean, it, it just really got to me. Because I, I had been used to, for years, trading technical reports of all kinds, you know. I mean, yeah. stuff that we were working on. Lots of other people working on in this country, companies and other agencies, and uh, there was a free interchange of technical reports, now, as it should be, but with this highly classified stuff, there was no interchange except under very, very controlled conditions, and that, that kind of got to me after a year and a half or so. That's, that's when I was kind of open to the possibility of moving again. In fact, I was starting to look for other positions at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base because there were plenty of jobs there. When, sure. I, when I was there, by the way, Tom, there were 25,000 employees at Wright Field. Wow. <laughs> just in, just in Dayton? Well, the, the, these were all, well, most of them were civilian employees. There were a few Air Force guys there, too, but, but 25,000 total employees at wow. Wright-Patterson. And that, so it was a big place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lots of employment opportunities. And, so, and lots of different kinds of employment, too. So, you know, it, it was an interesting place to work. I mean, I could have worked there all my life and been very, very satisfied, I'm sure. But for some reason, like I say, I got a little dissatisfied with working in this closed environment and was, was thinking about, you know, transferring to some other place. And lo and behold, I got a call from some, a friend of mine from General Electric. <laughs> and he said, hey, are you interested in... <laughs> I mean, he knew me from, you know, past the... Uh, associations in the jobs that I had before that where we had contracts with GE and uh, so he invited me down for the interview for a job as a program manager in, in their research and development group and so uh, I thought yeah what the heck what the heck why why not go down there and take a look and see what they got to offer well I went down there and took a look and they offered me a really good job <laughs> nice with lots of future opportunities and whatever so um, so I took it that's that's what got me out of Wright-Patterson but uh, at any rate I think I'll uh, I'll close there because we're yeah over yeah we an can hour now. we can continue on next time yeah my first steps in GE 